God, what else can the words of man add to that? That our that our Savior was was born of a virgin, nailed to a tree, and that that death could not hold him. That he rose again, completing the story. God, it has been good to worship you through music. And now as we just transition into a time of listening, God, help us not to check out. This is not, not time for us to, to check out. But God, I pray that uh, you'd write on Cameron's heart the words that you want for him to share. God, help him to be bold and encouraged. Help him to deliver your words and only your words, nothing more. God, we give this message to you and the rest of today. In the glorious and the risen in the anticipated name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen, and thank you. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Cameron, as been stated. Uh, I've had the privilege to know some of you for a little while, had uh, the opportunity to meet others of you just this morning. But for most of us in here, I've not had the opportunity to meet you. So if you would do me a favor on the count of three, just say your name out loud. One, two, three. It's great to get to meet you. Thank you. Um, let me start off by saying I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here, and I have such an admiration for this church and have for a long time. Uh, we, we don't live in this area. We're a little further south, but over the years we've had opportunity as friends have moved up to this area to recommend, hey, you need to check out Meadow Brook Church and its people. It's a, it's a great congregation, and some of them have found fellowship here while they've uh, been here. And, you know, if we lived uh, in this area, boy, this would be a church that our family could could easily, easily call home. You all have something very special here. And, uh, man, don't take that for granted because uh, not not every congregation gets to enjoy uh, what you get to enjoy here. So with that said, uh, I want to uh, take just a few minutes and. Go through a little bit of story in the Old Testament. It's one that we don't come to often. Uh, it's a character and some places with some names that are hard to pronounce. But there's a little bit of a lesson in there for us, I hope. And so I just want to take a little bit of time this morning to go through that. It's in the uh, book of Second Samuel, mostly. And it's the story of David and Mephibosheth. Uh, that's not a story, like I said, that we come to often. But let me let me set the stage in uh, in Second Samuel chapter four. Uh, we we hear about the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan and his brothers, and the news of that death comes to Saul's household, and immediately panic sets in. Because Saul's death and Jonathan's death at the hands of the Philistines, who were ruthless as a conquering people, 
they would surely be about eliminating in total destruction anyone remaining from Saul's household. And there was one young boy named Mephibosheth in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. It says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. Why was he crippled? Because when the panic sets in about the death of Saul and his sons, immediately in the household, they know what's coming. So they set out to flee. When news of the battle reached the capital, the child's nurse, Mephibosheth's nurse, grabbed him and fled. But she fell and dropped him as she was running. And he became crippled as a result. Both ankles broken and not having an opportunity to set right and heal right. He goes through life now with this this disability, this mar in his life as a result of what happened. They fled not only because of the Philistine army that would surely wreak havoc and destruction on Saul's household, but also out there is David and his guerrilla band of men. David, you remember, was anointed to be king of Israel. But Saul was still king. And David had plenty of opportunities to to take care of Saul and to ascend to the throne. But he respected Saul as God's anointed for that time. And so did not pursue the throne. Even though Saul, on occasion, would attempt to kill David. But now, with Saul gone and removed from the scene, what's to prevent David then from coming in also and cleaning house and setting up his own throne and his own kingdom, just as God had said? So they flee to a place called Lodabar. It's a nothing place. It looks nothing like the beauty and the joy here. Lodabar essentially means it's a place of no pasture. It's a place of obscurity. It's a place of dryness. It's a place of trying to eke out existence in harsh conditions. And so here is this boy, Mephibosheth, a young child. He's disabled. He's living in exile. He's living in obscurity. He is an heir to what would have been the throne. He has a royal identity. But it remains suppressed and hidden. Because if anybody knew who he was, surely he would have to be removed as well. So here he had this inheritance as the grandson of a king, the son of a prince. But all of that is suppressed and his future seems lost. Now, one of the things we know about people who live in exile, one of the ways that they maintain their pride, one of the ways they try to maintain their identity is by telling stories. And we can only imagine around the campfires at night, Mephibosheth's nurse recounting stories of past glories. What could have been. And every day hearing those stories, every day feeling 
the loss, feeling about what could have been. And no doubt, too, the stories tell about how all of this is really David's fault. If it wasn't for David, maybe the Philistines wouldn't have been after the household of Saul so much. So every night growing up, every day growing up, this sense of being a victim, the loss of a future, the obscurity in exile, the the disability, really contributes to just growing up with a sense of, I'm really just a victim here. In fact, Mephibosheth, the name means seething dishonor. You get the sense of just every day, that low-level anger, just about, why am I living like this? I was in the palace. And every day, no more past glories, or no more future glories. What could have been? It wasn't of my own making. I was just a little boy. It was nothing of my own choosing. So that introduces us to the character of Mephibosheth. And then over in Second Samuel, chapter eight, chapter nine. I'm sorry, where we'll we'll spend some of our time. Time goes on, Mephibosheth grows up, and David goes about, now that Saul is out of the picture, a lot of military victories, a lot of political wranglings, a lot of behind-the-scenes kind of intrigue. But eventually, David unites the kingdom, and he's king over all of Israel. The battles are fought, the wars are over for a time, and he enjoys relative peace. And the preceding chapter, chapter 8, says, David reigned over all Israel and was fair and equitable to everyone. So it was a time of peace, a time of growing prosperity. And in that time, David had something to do that can sometimes be dangerous. He had time to think. And so he wonders, one day in chapter 9 of Second Samuel, We'll go through this. One day David began wondering if anyone in Saul's family was still alive. For he had promised Jonathan that he would show kindness to them. Now, if you remember the story of David and Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son. Almost as soon as David and Jonathan met, they had a bond, a forever bond of love and kinship with one another. In fact, it was Jonathan who often protected David from the manic, jealous rages of his father. And David wonders, is there anyone from Jonathan's family that I can show kindness to? So he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. The king then asks him, Ziba replied, yes, there is one person left from Saul's family, a boy. He is alive still, but he's crippled. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel, 
So David sent for him and brought him from Maker's home. Now imagine with all the way that Mephibosheth was raised, some strangers show up one day to say, the king wants to see you. Well, that could only mean one thing. David had finally figured out who he was and where he was. And this was the opportunity to just wipe out and get rid of all of Saul's family and any threats to David's throne. Mephibosheth, he was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And so he's on his way to see David. And you can imagine, you know, probably every step along the way on top of the donkey and going back, the fear and the trembling that grows in his heart, the fear. So when he came to David, he bowed low in great fear and said, I am your servant. Probably hoping for the best, but expecting the worst. But David said, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. I've asked you to come so that I can be kind to you. Because of my vow to your father, Jonathan, I will give you all the land that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you may live here with me at the palace. You know, my, my particular translation doesn't have it, but in, in others they do. David's first word to Mephibosheth is his name. I use my imagination a little bit here. But Mephibosheth, which meant seething dishonor. I imagine when David said Mephibosheth for the first time, he said it in such a way and with such gentleness. And with such a motive to show love, he heard his name probably for the very first time in a very different way. What once was dishonorable became something new altogether. Don't be afraid. I've asked you to come so that I can be kind to you because of my vow to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the land that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you may live here with me at the palace. So Mephibosheth fell to the ground before the king. Should the king show such kindness to a dead dog like me? He exclaimed. See, his name for the longest time had been a label. But David took it and made it something different. I suspect in a room of this size with this many people, we've all had labels slung at us. And many times we've worn them around our neck like a heavy weight. I have a thought about labels. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no Bible verse for it per se, but I think it's consistent with what we read in Scripture. That labels are those ugly things that we put on people to protect our own prejudices and our fears. And they're the things that keep us at a distance from people that are not quite like us. Like I said, they, 
they justify our prejudice or they justify our our sense of feeling better about ourselves than we ought to because there's someone not quite in the same situation as us. But the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for his family. But Mephibosheth, he will live here at the palace with me. And Ziba, who had 15 sons and 20 servants, replied, Yes, my lord, I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly with David as though he were one of his own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and from then on, all members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, moved to Jerusalem to live at the palace. Interesting, it mentions again that he was crippled in both feet. Why is that important? One of the reasons that's important is because we look back to David's motive. Mephibosheth, as a crippled man now, was of no use to David. He really couldn't contribute to the production of the kingdom. He really was dependent. So it's just another way of showing David's motive to show kindness and love toward Jonathan's son. In that story, there are a few important notes and applications, some things that are important to remember. And one is that, like Mephibosheth, we too are broken. We have a brokenness in our lives that that surrounds us all the time. It's sort of unintentional that this idea of brokenness continues something, Scott, your pastor, has been speaking about for several weeks. And I confess to a a certain anxiety about it because brokenness is one of those words we really mostly just use in church or when they're talking about churchy things. I mean, when you go to your workplace or when you're out playing and, you know, the, the beauty that's around here, you know, people don't really talk like that. They'll say, well, you know, I'm just broken. That's just not a, that's not a word that kind of connects to where we live culturally. You know, we're in the age of self-empowerment. You know, we're in the age of self-health and, and personal growth. So to talk about brokenness is in the broader world, a little bit weird. Not only that, but even even in here, in a place like that, you know, it can be if you're going through a tough time and gosh, these days, who who isn't? And we're, we're kind of messed up in a lot of ways. It sounds like, oh, yeah, here's that broken thing again. I know we're broken. God puts all our pieces together. We wrap it up with a nice little bow and call it good. And so I want, I, I want to be sensitive to that in, in not minimizing 
the tough times that people are going through and the hurt, the very real hurt and pain that people are experiencing. See, it's 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 kind of like what what happens here. I think we we all we kind of walk through life with a with a backpack, if you will. And it's and it's got some things in it. Now, we try not to let some people see the backpack too often because it's, it's got things that remind us of, of, of things that hurt. And we carry them through life. You know, sometimes, you know, they're the, they're the wounds that we experience. Maybe it's the pointed words from a parent or a family member or a co-worker, you know, or the schoolyard bully, you know, they just they just stick with us and they stay with us and it weighs us down in life and we never can quite forget the word, the labels. You know, sometimes it's it's that it's that all all that we go through to win the approval of other people. You know, not necessarily because it's anything we want to be part of or that we're interested in, but because we're so addicted to the need to please other people. We'll, we'll, we'll go through all kinds of gyrations to wear these around our neck. And so we walk around life with that. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, all the voices that we listen to. You know, and they aren't they aren't the the voices we really care about or respect sometimes, but they're just the voices that that fill our world with the noise. You know, some of the words are good. Some are really not helpful. But we carry we carry those voices around with us. Sometimes you know, they're, they're just these little things that happen. You know, they're not in and of themselves. They're really not. They don't amount to much. We try to keep them hidden away in a box as if they don't really matter that much to us. But it's just another one of those things that kind of weigh us down. And if we get enough of them, you know, there's just this low-level anxiety and pressure and anger that can affect our lives. You know, sometimes it's just the, the flicker of hope. You know, that we try to keep lit. You know, we go through hard times. But we, we keep hope. But it gets stuffed out. And we're just feeling despair again. You know, sometimes there are these go through life and we just we just have these memories. Some of them are good. Some of them are not. You know, they're good, they're bad part of what makes us who we are and we just carry it around 
sometimes it's 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 the dreams that that we've we've had you know we've we've written them down maybe or maybe I haven't written them down but they're part of our life this is this is really what I want to be really what I want to do and it just gets taken from us you know and tossed away sometimes by our own choosing sometimes not and then there are those those things that just sort of just sort of bind us you know they're not they're the things that kind of keep keep us not quite free they bind us as we try and go through life you know we all we all have this backpack and when we come to a place like like this you know in a, in a church what we what we often try to do is we we sort of keep that one in the car or we keep it at home you know before we show up and we come here and we say hey how you doing as if the backpack doesn't really exist but we all know the backpack exists so another another thing we do sometimes is we well you know it's there we'll we'll try and keep it a little bit at a, at a distance ah you know yeah it's it's that's my backpack but it you know it doesn't really affect me you know that much you know and if and if we can't do that then we'll at least try to you know we'll try to wear it cool like you know like yeah you know yeah I can take it leave it put it put it back down no no problem no problem man the deal is this we all show up to a place like this and we're all wearing a backpack and really we can say ah see you got a backpack too looks a lot like mine you know just like Mephibosheth we are broken and we carry these things around and in order for there to be restoration in life we need some help just like Mephibosheth got some help he got an invitation from the king come to the king's table come to the king's house there's a place for you now. There's a place to sleep, a place to rest, a place to feast at the table, a place to find all your provisions met. That invitation came to Mephibosheth. That invitation comes to us. You know, see that story of David and Mephibosheth as just a picture of what God has done for us. You know, there's an interesting reversal in the story alluded to Jonathan and David's friendship. At one point, you know, Jonathan was the one in the king's house and David was the outcast. And Jonathan brought David near and protected him. And now David is over the king's house. Jonathan's son is the outcast. And David brings him near. There is one true king, a living king, God, and we are the outcasts. And he invites us near for friendship and provision and rest.
Now, Mephibosheth, when he came to David, he feared the worst. And how many of us haven't met before or know now people who really feel like, you know, God is surely really out to get me. And they fear God. Because of situations in their life or things that they've done. And just like there was nothing in Mephibosheth's life or character that made him useful to David. There was nothing in his life that made him deserving of coming into the king's house. That's okay. There's no need for him to fear Because the invitation was based not on his merit, but on the character of the king. And likewise for us, our invitation to friendship with God is not based on anything in us, but it's based on his character of love, faithfulness, kindness, and gentleness. We don't need to fear. In Ezekiel uh, uh, Ezekiel 34, there's... uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll just, I'll just read a few passages because this is a, it's a beautiful passage that describes the character of God for his people. Let me just read some selected parts of it. Destruction is certain for you shepherds who feed yourself instead of your flocks. He's speaking to the shepherds of Israel who who use the things of God for their own gain instead of protecting their people. So you have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the broken bones. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd. They are easy prey. They have wandered through the mountains and hills across the face of the earth. Yet no one has gone to search for them. I, myself, will search and find my sheep. I will be like a shepherd looking for the scattered flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places to which they were scattered. I, myself, will tend my sheep and cause them to lie down in peace, says the Sovereign Lord. I will search for my lost ones who strayed away, and I will bring them safely home again. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will surely judge between the fat sheep and the scrawny sheep. For you, fat sheep, push and butt and crowd my sick and hungry flock until they are scattered to distant lands. So I will rescue my flock, and they will no longer be abused and destroyed. You are my flock, the sheep of my pasture. You are my people, and I am your God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That is not a God who's out to get you. That's a God who's out to bring us home. Not because of what's in us but because of what's in him just like in I think in your outline you have 
that New Testament passage from Titus listed. It says, We too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, captives of various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the goodness and love for man appeared from God, our Savior, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy and the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That should we read something like that and that should just be a sigh of relief and an expression of praise. That's our story. And we need to remember that David did not merely just show kindness to Mephibosheth. The story includes justice. It includes putting back together what was lost and making it right. Mephibosheth had an inheritance once, but he lost it all because of circumstances. That can easily happen to us. You know, the circumstances sometimes of our own making, sometimes not. What we once thought were going to be true never come to pass. And we find ourselves, like Mephibosheth, broken in need of a Savior and in need of help. You know, we come to a place like this, marked with a cross right there in the back. And the cross reminds us that much like David restored Mephibosheth, God restores us. Jesus came all the way from heaven as we sung about earlier. Beautiful songs this morning. They tell the whole story. God comes to us and draws us in to make us his own. And we can do no less than to embrace the invitation and to invite others to be part of it as well. There's a great little little story in, in Luke chapter 14. There's more to the story than, than what we'll focus on here. But Jesus is at another fellowship with the wrong crowd again. And... People are sort of questioning him. And he tells a story. It says, A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When all was ready, he sent his servant around to notify the guests that it was time for them to come. But they all began making excuses. One said, ah, You know, I just bought a field and I need to inspect it and check it out. So he asked to be excused. Another said he had just bought five pair of oxen and, well, you know, I, I got to try them out. I, I can't come to the banquet. And another had just been married, so he couldn't come. And the servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was angry. And he said, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the city and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. And after the servant had done this, he reported, there's still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come 
so that the house will be full. That's Jesus' command to us. To come and enjoy the banquet. But to bring the broken. To bring the poor. To bring the lost. To bring the outcasts. To bring those on the margins. To bring those that are disenfranchised. Those that don't live self-empowered. Our invitation is to come. And enjoy the banquet of the king. Will we embrace that invitation or will we stay far off? Will we make excuses like some of the other people? Like, I, not right now. You kind of don't understand the situation in my life. Jesus says, come to the table. You will find rest. You will find a light burden in life. You will find provision. And most of all, you will find that love that you're looking for. Let's pray together. Father, we sang of your amazing love this morning. We see in the scripture a picture of your love for us through the life of David. We experience your love together in fellowship with one another here in this church and in this area. God, thank you for the glimpse now and then of what you've done for us. Just the art of the cross in the back of the room. Father, may all those words that we sang and are about to sing, that your love doesn't fail. If we get nothing else, God, help us to cement that in our life, that that your love doesn't fail. That we don't have to live our life by the label. That we no longer have to live with that that we can discover shedding the label who you really created us to be Father I pray as we celebrate your love this morning and your provision for us I I pray most of all for authenticity that we would not pretend That we would not try to posture. That we would recognize that, yeah, we we got a backpack. Full of the things that we just pick up in life. But you take those things. You heal them. You use them to help us serve other people going through similar experiences. God, I pray that we would be your people, friends of God, and that as we live out that life, we would allow your faithful love, your never-ending love, your forever love, to live through us, to shine through us, 
throughout all the world. And the world, Father, is just the friendships and the relationships you've put around each and every one of us. We can't do it all by ourselves, but we can share your love one life at a time, one friendship at a time, one relationship at a time here in this place. Be it through just a simple conversation, through a simple gesture, or an opportunity like David to show love to Mephibosheth. That is a defining moment for other people. Lord, help us to not fail in those moments. In Jesus' name, amen.